Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As I have said before, but we'll say it again to set the background a little bit, um, we're just really months before the cross. Uh, in fact, just a short time earlier, Jesus had withdrawn from everyone pretty much completely except his disciples and had taken them up into the most northern region of the country around Caesarea Philippi. And there he was building into them, talking with them. In fact, the last six months of his ministry, almost exclusively, he would be uh, dealing with them one-on-one, uh, one-on-twelve, one on uh, because he wanted to build into them. He recognized soon he was going to be going to the cross. He needed to really build into them in these final months because they were going to be taking over, of course, for him after his crucifixion and resurrection. So he comes down now from the area of Caesarea Philippi to again the area of the Galilee, stays there just a short time, and then crosses over the Jordan on the east side now, begins to come down through the region of the Decapolis and Perea. Perea would be to the east of where the Dead Sea area is, which is where he has just been. Now he's crossed over the Jordan, so now he's on the west side now, where around the area of Jericho, which is just north of the Dead Sea. And this is where we're going to kind of pick up the story. It says here, verse 32, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. You always pretty much go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. Where they were around the area of Jericho, uh, that's a thousand feet below sea level. Jerusalem, which is 15 miles away, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So in just a very short time, about 15 miles, you're going to, they're going to walk up about 3,500 feet. So it's a pretty steep incline. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. These guys are going through a whole mixture of emotions. Um, you know, we look at this story with hindsight. We know what's going on. We're, we're so familiar with what happens that we, I think, lose the impact of what the disciples were feeling. This was all new to them, okay? They didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history to look back on this event. They were living it firsthand. And as such, they were just uh, just a mixture of feelings and emotions. They had really forsaken pretty much everything to follow him. And they believed, of course, that he was going to, as Messiah, was going to set up the kingdom. And yet, the closer he got to the cross, the more he talked about, you know, being crucified. He's going to talk about it again in a second. Uh, they knew that it was bad news in Jerusalem. They knew that they had to leave there because it had gotten so hot with the Pharisees that they were out looking to kill him. And so now here they're going back to Jerusalem and I'm sure in their minds they're thinking, wow, this is not a smart idea. You know, I mean, we don't know what's going to await us there. They're scared. And, and that's what they were feeling. They were afraid. Uh, they were, they were uh, bewildered. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Now, Jesus knows his men. He knows they're afraid. He knows they're just a mixture of fear and bewilderment. And just, they don't know what's going to happen next. It's interesting that he kind of comforts them by, again, reminding them of the very thing that they're afraid of. His coming crucifixion. I mean, they, they, they've heard him say he's going to die. They haven't fully grasped exactly what that means, of course, although it was pretty straightforward. But because of their concept of the Messiah and what he was going to do, which was in their minds was a, 
lead a revolt against Rome and set up the kingdom, how could the Messiah ever talk about being killed? How could he set up the kingdom? They were really confused. So they understood that he said that he was going to die, yet they couldn't reconcile it in their minds with the mission of the Messiah. And yet, knowing that they were afraid and confused, he goes ahead and reassures them or tries to comfort them with the very thing that they're afraid of. Now why? Because the only way he could really comfort them, I mean, there was no other way around the cross. He knew that. He knew he was going to the cross, and they had to come to that realization. There was just no other way around it. The only way he could comfort them was to reassure them that he knew all about the cross, that it's not like a lot of people even today believe, that Jesus Christ was a you know, a Nazarene carpenter that got kind of uh, big for his britches and got a little following together and thought himself somebody really important and they, you know, wound up being a little careless and getting himself crucified. He did not want them to ever have the impression that he was a victim in this whole thing. He said, look, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. He wanted them to know that everything that he was about to endure, he knew full well in advance what was going to happen. It was all planned for before the foundation of the world, and he had come for this purpose alone, and that was to die on the cross. That would be important for him to remind them of that, because obviously when it all took place then, they would remember you know, afterwards that, yes, he said that, see? He wanted them to understand he was no victim. A lot of people think Jesus was a victim. Jesus was no victim. He said, at any time, I could call to my Father. He would send to me 12 legions of angels, about 72,000 angels, to deliver me. He said, should I pray to be delivered from this hour? No, for this hour, for this cause, I came into the world. So he wanted them to know that. There was no way he was going to be able to comfort them with regard to what was coming. The cross was inevitable. He just wanted them to realize, though, that it was all planned in the program of God, and that was the, the important thing. Now, of course, this is the third time he has told them he's going to the cross. This is the first time, though, he gives them a little bit more about it, that now the Gentiles are also going to be involved in this whole process. Of course, we know that the, the Jews could not put anybody to death. I mean, Rome had taken away from them the right of capital punishment. So remember how that, uh, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, and they wanted Pilate to do away with him, and Pilate said, you take him and execute him. And they said, we can't execute anybody, because Rome had taken the power of, of capital punishment away from the Jews. They had to go to the Roman government. The Roman government had to do the dirty work that, that the Jews themselves could not do. Of course, let's not blame the Jews or the Romans all of us put Jesus on the cross, right? Uh, to, to say that the Jews were the ones that really did it, and boy, you know, they crucified the Messiah. Well, uh, technically they were the instrument that was used, but really it was the heart of all men that put Jesus on the cross. So he's telling them now for the first time that the Gentiles would be also involved in this process. They would mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And on the third day, he would rise again. Now, folks, that is the gospel in its simplest and most basic form. People say, well, what is exactly the gospel? Well, that, in a nutshell, is it. In fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, goes on to say here in verse 1, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel that Paul preached. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down, died in the cross for our sins, and rose again the third day from the dead bodily. That is the gospel. The resurrection, of course, was the central theme of all apostolic preaching. That was the heart and soul of the gospel message. In fact, Paul goes on to basically say this because uh, some had come into Corinth 
teaching that Jesus Christ had not really risen from the dead. And Paul says, well, we've got a real problem now. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then I'm a liar because I told you he rose from the dead. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then my preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are among all men the most to be pitied. But he said, but now Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the gospel. The resurrection is the central message of the gospel. Now, there are those going around today, and maybe you've come across some, who like to think there are two gospels. And I've had some discussions just recently with some who believe there are two gospels. And they're really on this thing. And they'll come up to you and say, how many gospels are there? And I said, well, there's only one gospel. No, no, there's two gospels. There's the gospel of the Old Testament, the gospel of the kingdom, and then there's the gospel that, that, that God gave to Paul. See? In other words, Jesus came with a different gospel. Uh, Jesus didn't preach the, the, the gospel to the church, the gospel of grace. He preached the old gospel, a gospel of works, see, embodied in the old covenant. And uh, Paul got the new gospel, see, the gospel of grace. Well, there's some real problems with that whole thing, and I don't have time to develop it all, but you have to recognize that there's only one real gospel. I mean, in the Old Testament, nobody got saved through the works of the law. To say that, well, that was the old gospel because that was based on works. Even in the Old Testament, way back in Genesis, Paul makes a whole doctrinal argument about salvation always being of grace through faith. When he said, and it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, it said that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith, which formed the basis of another theological argument on salvation by grace through faith, which Paul penned in the Galatians. Uh, the gospel has always been the same. Nobody ever got saved by the works of the law. Nobody. Not in the Old Testament and certainly not in the New Testament. And to say Paul received kind of some kind of different gospel, well, Paul said this, the only thing I preach is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And here he said, this is the gospel which I received. It was the gospel that Jesus died and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, when he wrote this, of course, he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So where in the Old Testament was it ever prophesied that Messiah would die and on the third day he would rise again? Well, you have to realize that in the Old Testament there's two types of prophecies. There's typical and there's verbal. Verbal prophecies are pretty straightforward. That's where, of course, the prophet, through words, communicated something that God said was going to happen. Typical prophecy is where God uses types to communicate a message. And one of the most beautiful and powerful typical prophecies you'll ever find in the Old Testament is, of course, in Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham, Take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him on Mount Moriah, which was a three-day journey. And of course, Abraham was a type of the father. Isaac was a type of the son. Mount Moriah was the very place that God the Father would, 2,000 years later, offer his only begotten son on that very place, right? And so it foreshadowed Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Now, in the rabbinical mind, this is what they believe, those that are completed Jews, Messianic Jews, they believe that when God told Abraham to kill Isaac, offer him on Mount Moriah, from that instant in Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead. And it was a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and then he was going to offer him there, but God, you know, withheld him from doing so, and they offered a ram instead. But at that moment, Isaac was then was, was, had come back from the dead in a spiritual kind of a sense. And so they believe that's what God was talking about. Uh, that's what Paul was talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That typical prophecy out of Genesis 22. Now, that tells me that way back in Genesis 22, the gospel was there. Uh, you know, I mean, the gospel has always been the same. Yes, God has revealed it more fully as time went on, even to the point in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul said, Behold, I'm showing you a mystery. And people say, Well, look, there it is. A mystery, the Greek word there is a mysterion, which means something that was once hidden, but now is being made known. And Paul's talking about the gospel he received. 
So how could it have been known until Paul the Apostle? He's not talking about the gospel there. If you read on in the context, you find out he's saying, this is a mystery that nobody else knew until just now I'm telling it to you, that in Christ, the body of Christ, God would make Jew and Gentile one in the same body. Now that was another facet of the gospel that had not been known until Paul revealed it. But the basic gospel that Jesus the Messiah would come and die and rise again, that has always been in the pages of Scripture. So be careful, because people have all kinds of strange ideas today, uh, carried about by various winds of doctrine because they haven't taken the time to really study for themselves fully what the whole Word of God is saying. Now, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Or Matthew says, In your kingdom. Now, I love these guys. They're beautiful. I mean, think about it. He has just gotten done telling them he is on his way to Jerusalem, 15 miles away. And he's going to be delivered over to the hands of the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him and spit on him and, and beat him up and crucify him. And he no sooner gets done saying that, then here comes James and John saying, Oh yeah, by the way, Lord, can my brother and I sit one in your right hand and the other in your left hand in the kingdom? I mean, it's amazing to me how carnally minded these guys really were before the cross. How dull of hearing they were spiritually, you know? How preoccupied and consumed they were with their own agenda. Here he was talking about the cross. He is literally weeks away from the cross. And they're talking about places of glory for themselves in the kingdom. It's amazing to me how blind they really were to the cross. And really is no different today in many respects. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that, first of all, they put their mother up to coming to Jesus. Salome comes to Jesus first of all. You know, she kind of breaks the ice. And she comes to him and she kneels down. The Greek uh, is a word that's translated in other parts of the New Testament. She worshipped him. So she comes down, kneeling in front of him, and she's worshiping him. And he says, what do you want? He, he, knew, he knew her heart. He knew she was only worshiping him because she wanted to get something from him. How often do we do that? How often do people, Christians, feel like, well, I've just been laid off, and so I better get back to church. I better get back into worship so I can ask the Lord to give me a new job or something like that. How many times do we worship the Lord with strings attached, you know? coming to Him, kind of buttering Him up through our worship because we want something from Him. He knows our hearts. I'm convinced He would rather have you just come to Him and say, Lord, I need this. And then after you've laid your request out, then worship Him. But I mean, He knows the, the heart. Worship is not about getting, it's about, about giving. So she comes and she kind of breaks the ice and then Jesus says to James and John, who are no doubt standing just real nearby, what do you guys want? And they, they came to Him and said, well, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. There's a lot of Christians who believe this is what prayer is all about. Going to the Lord and basically telling Him, Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. There's a lot of people like that today who think prayer is just God's blank check to give you whatever you want. Because if you ask in faith and confess whatever you want positively, you'll receive it. Almost like the Lord can't say no. And so I, I kind of love the wording here. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a, you know, that's to me so indicative, so typical of so many Christians. Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we want, right? And so he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, well, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory, or Matthew says, in your kingdom. Say so they're looking for those places of honor. Now, Looking at different parts of the New Testament, it appears that Salome, the mother of James and John, could very well have been the sister of the Virgin Mary. If you compare certain passages together, it looks very possibly that Salome was the sister of 
Mary. Which means that James and John were first cousins of Jesus. Maybe she felt that should count for something. Uh, you know, let's face it, it's not what you know till you know, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, family using their position to get family into certain places of authority and, uh, and honor have been going on for centuries, right? Since the beginning of time. She felt, well, hey, it's your cousin. Uh, you know, if he can't help his cousins out and get them places of honor in the kingdom, uh, what good is uh, having a relative in the top spot, right? So she could have come thinking that she had a legitimate request. But again, the carnality, I mean, holy cow, you can't get much more grossly, overtly carnal than this. Coming to the Lord on the last leg of his journey before the cross saying, hey, by the way, can you get my two boys places of honor in the kingdom? One on your right hand, the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, We can. What a bunch of blockheads. They, they had no conception of what it, what it meant to follow in his footsteps. They had no idea what they were saying. They didn't even know what he, where he was really going technically. I mean, he talked about going to Jerusalem, of course, and to the cross, but... Uh, they were still in the dark, basically in the fog, as to what he was going to be enduring soon, let alone be able to say, well, we'll follow in your footsteps. Many times we have no idea, I'm convinced, what it really means to follow him all the way. First of all, he said, can you drink the cup that I drink? The cup, of course, was a reference to God's judgment, God's indignation, which he was going to pour out upon sin, which he would pour out upon Christ, really. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And believe me, the cup was a lot more than the cross. I mean, it was more than some nails and a scourging whip, okay? Uh, we don't have any concept to understand what Jesus went through, not just being nailed to the cross, but having the sins of humanity laid upon him he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And for the only time in eternity, past or future, the Father turned his face from the Son as he became sin on that cross. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in the Bible it says in the Old Testament, God cannot bear to look upon sin in the sense of having fellowship with someone involved in sin. And of course the Son was pure and sinless, but he took my sins and your sins on himself. And for that instant in eternity, he was severed from the Father. We have no concept of understanding what it's like for a holy God in perfect harmony and unity with each other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for one of them to be suddenly ripped away from that incredible oneness and unity. I, I, have no, I can't begin to fathom what that was all about. So the cup was a lot more than just the cross or the scourging post. It goes beyond anything we've ever been able to comprehend and this is what awaited him he recognized that he knew full well what awaited him his disciples they were kind of following in a fog they didn't really know and so he says the cup that i drink can you drink it of course the cup that we as his followers drink is nothing compared to what he drank. but obviously though there are some comparisons the same kind of persecution the same kind of, um, of reviling, uh, even to the point where he was tortured and then killed. There are many who have been tortured and even killed for the cause of Christ. So we as his followers, obviously, have to drink some of the cup that he drank, but nothing compared to what he drank. He said, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Be careful. It's just a simple obvious point I think for most of us here but don't assume that every time the word baptism appears in the Bible it's talking about water baptism the word baptism of course is a Greek word that means to immerse but it doesn't always have to mean to immerse in water there are some that read the New Testament and every place that the word baptism appears they they think water baptism that's not true this is a dry baptism he's talking about here really Luke 12:50 he says 
Uh, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and oh, how I long for it to be completed. Uh, and when he said that, he was, he was a long way after John the Baptist had baptized him. The idea is, the word means to immerse. You can immerse somebody in water. You can immerse somebody in a mission. You know what I'm saying? A cause. Jesus was totally immersed in his mission. He was totally given over to the will of his Father, which of course was that he go to the cross and die for our sins. Uh, but be careful, because a lot of people have gotten misled by the whole concept of baptism in the Bible and applying it only in the sense of water baptism. Here in Matthew chapter 3, here it's talking about John the Baptist, how he was preaching out in the wilderness and baptizing. In verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say among yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And now, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every, good tr every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So that was, of course, John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. And the Romans and Jews both practiced baptism. It wasn't just a Christian thing. The Romans also practiced a form of baptism, and the Jews also. And here, John was baptizing people with a baptism of repentance, coming to John, confessing their sins. He would baptize them as a symbol that their hearts had now been prepared for the coming of Messiah. Okay, He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Two baptisms that John talks about, really three. The one that he was involved in, baptism of water, and the baptism that Jesus Christ would baptize the whole world with, which was twofold. Those that believed, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, give them the power to do the work of God throughout the world. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit came upon the disciples. In other words, He overflowed them. They were immersed in the Spirit and received power to go ahead and out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth with the message of the gospel. Those that reject the gospel someday, He will immerse in the lake of fire. He will toss into the lake of fire and where they will be immersed for all eternity. That's why at the end here he says he will gather the wheat into his barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Two different kinds of baptisms there. Now we recognize also that it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that for by one spirit we've all been baptized into one body. That's another dry baptism. That's a salvation baptism. The second, the instant you give your heart to Jesus Christ, invisibly spiritually, miraculously, the Spirit of God places you in the body of Christ. You are immersed in the body of Christ. Another way of saying you're saved. You're saved. Now, that's different. The Spirit baptizing you into Christ is different from Christ baptizing you into the Spirit. One is salvation, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The other is, of course, the empowering for service, where Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And you receive that dunamis, that power for service. But water baptism, I want you to understand, does not save anybody. It's a symbol. And there are those that say water baptism is essential for our salvation. And they'll pull out verses, you know, and we'll look at a couple since we, we have some time. Uh, at the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, he's giving them the Great Commission in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Saved. He who does not believe will be condemned, and these signs will follow those that believe, and so on and so forth. They say, look, he said, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Um, well, that doesn't mean that, sal that salvation is dependent upon baptism. It just means that baptism was a symbol that went along with salvation to 
as an outward sign that Christ had washed your sins away. It was like a public declaration that you were now saying publicly, the old life is dead. You know, when they would immerse them in water, it would kind of signify a burial. Then they came up out of the water, signified resurrection life, a new life in Christ. And it was a public declaration to everyone around, from now on I'm living my life for Jesus Christ. It's a public thing. You're making a public declaration. Jesus said, if you um, deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. And the idea is that, no, we're not saved because we confess Christ publicly. We're confessing Christ publicly as a sign that we are saved. How many people who are not born again are going to be out there preaching Jesus and taking all the, all the persecution from the world over it if you're not really one of His? No, no way. It's a sign that you are definitely born again because you're willing to speak out for Him and take whatever heat or flack or persecution that comes as a result. See, And that just demonstrates genuineness. So, even though he says, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved, he then says, and he who does not believe will be condemned. Just doesn't believe is the idea. Real quickly, Acts chapter 2. Some will point to verse 38, where Peter says, then, said, then Peter said to them, repent, because they asked him, men and brethren, what must we do? Peter had already preached a sermon. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they said, Look, see, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Baptism is essential for the remission of sins. No, in the Greek, you could translate this very easily, because of. Uh, it could very easily be translated, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins. See, baptism was always a symbol. After Jesus had washed your sins away through his blood, you then went did a public thing to let everyone know that Jesus has cleansed you. See, And from this moment on, I'm going to live for Christ. Um, years ago, when I first got into ministry, some dear woman sent me a little track about baptism and it had about I don't know man about 25 different points as to the correct way to baptize and baptism according to this track was essential see and you had to do it just a certain way if it was going to work it wasn't going to take if you didn't do it a certain way so you had to really you know and I'm like oh my gosh Lord am I misleading people I mean is water baptism really essential for some I mean I never believed it was I mean, are you trying to tell me something, Lord? And I began to really pray about it and was really, you know, it was really weighing heavy on me because I didn't want to do anything as a new teacher to mislead anybody. And then the Lord, one night, just about two or three days later, as I was reading, you know, my, in my devotions, he led me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where Peter said, There is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. So baptism saves us. But then he goes on to say, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, yes, baptism saves us, but it's not the wet kind, not dipping a person in water and washing off a little dirt from their flesh. It's the kind that comes when you've given your heart to Jesus Christ and believe in the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit comes and He baptizes you into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. That's the baptism that saves us. And then we take somebody down and water baptize them as a symbol of that. And again, I throw out to you Paul the Apostle who was consumed with seeing people saved. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, look, he said, some of you guys are saying I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy. Some of you say I'm of Christ, I'm of Paul. He said, man, did Cephas die for your sins? It was Paul, you know, raised for your what? He said, you're crazy. This is nuts. He says, and look, as far as baptizing goes, I haven't been called to baptize. And I've only baptized just a few. God has not called me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, if baptism was essential for salvation, you better believe Paul would have been baptizing. As soon as they had prayed the prayer of salvation, he would have ran him down to the river 
and dunked them in because if that was essential, believe me, he would never have said, I've only been called to preach the gospel because we know he was called to see people saved. He was an evangelist. So the baptism that Jesus is referring to here in Mark 10, of course, was the baptism of his death. He was immersed in his mission. And he said to them, look, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? You're right. As my followers, you are going to have to endure some of the things that I've endured. James, we know, was the first apostle to be, uh, to be martyred for his faith. John wasn't martyred. They, church history says that they tried to kill him. They threw him in a pot of boiling oil, but he wouldn't die. So they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, and there he received the Revelation, which he wrote down, which became the book of Revelation. Uh, so, but John also endured hardship and persecution. Uh, yes, James and John did endure quite a bit to follow Jesus Christ, and they weren't the only ones, of course. Uh, most of the, all the other apostles were all martyred for their faith, and, um, and of course, thousands of disciples of Jesus Christ in the first just few decades alone after his resurrection. So, yes, it was going to cost them something to follow him, yes. But he said, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. Now notice, they came to him and said, Lord, we want you to give us whatever we ask. And again, some teach that that's a valid prayer. Because whatever you ask in faith, God has to give you. But what did Jesus do? He said, first of all, you can't take the easy route, guys. You don't receive rewards in the kingdom at no cost. Sure, salvation is free. But your place of honor and reward in the kingdom depends on the level of sacrifice and suffering you endure for the kingdom or for Christ's sake here on this earth. Salvation is free. Rewards, though, are things that we work for. Work for out of a love for Jesus Christ. But, you know, it's easy to come and say, Hey, Lord, give me the best place of honor in the kingdom. Jesus says, Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't come cheap. See, that's a costly thing you're asking. And notice... He didn't just say, well, you've asked in faith, you've confessed it positively. Certainly. What more is there to do, right? No, it was still the sovereignty of God, wasn't it? She said, look, it's not mine to give, but to those to whom it was prepared by my Father. So we can pray in faith. We can come to Jesus Christ asking for whatever we want, but you know what? It still has to be go through the grid of God's sovereign will. We have to remember that. Just because we come and say, Lord, give us whatever we ask, doesn't mean he's going to. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm extremely thankful for the prayers the Lord has not answered. When I prayed for things I thought I knew I wanted and thought I would benefit me and come to find out as God said no, and I look back now, I realize, oh man, am I glad he didn't answer that prayer. Because he does know what's best. He's all-knowing. And for me to come to him and presume to know what's best for my life and to kind of demand it through prayer is ridiculous. If, he, if that would work, we'd all be in sorry shape. If God just gave us whatever we wanted just because we asked for it. I mean, just like the young child would be in sorry shape that his parents gave him everything he asked for. Children can't make those kinds of decisions. They need someone that's wiser than them. And so do we. So, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. Now, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Do you think this was a righteous anger? James and John, how carnal can you guys get? Don't you know the Lord's going to the cross? Nah, I don't believe that for a second. I believe they were mad at James and John because they kind of slipped ahead of them. They were coveting those positions of honor, too. And James and John had the nerve to come out and ask for it. That's what I think upset them more than anything else. Of course, this began to, to instantly cause division among the twelve. And Jesus 
knowing about it, called them to himself and said to them, You know, those that, those that uh, who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, we have covered this concept of, of greatness being equated with service before. And one of the best ways to learn something, and you know how the Bible repeats things over and over again? Comes at it from maybe a little different direction, but he repeat, the, the Lord repeats his doctrines over and over again. In fact, Peter even says in his epistle, he said, look, he said, I've said these things to you before, but I feel I need to put you in remembrance of them again. Uh, repetition is a great way to teach because it helps us to remember. And the more the Lord repeats something, obviously, the more important it must be to him. And this is at least the second, possibly the third time he has talked to them about greatness not being you know, the kind of greatness that the world defines greatness as. You know, they were thinking like the world. They were thinking like the Roman rulers did, you know, where greatness was equated with authority, being over people. You know, the more people you had under you, the more important you were. That was greatness in their eyes. And Jesus says, no, that's not greatness at all. You want to be in positions of honor in the kingdom? Is that what you guys want? You want to sit on my right hand and on my left? Then recognize this. Greatness in the kingdom is not like greatness in the world. To be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become a servant to all. The greatest among you is going to be the servants. See, it's totally different from the way the world thinks. In fact, the Lord often thinks in exactly the opposite of the way the world reasons and thinks. And, and this is so important. I mean, the word servant here is the Greek word diakonos, which is the word in the Greek that's translated most times in the New Testament, ministered. That's important because today, of course, the concept of the minister is somebody who is a professional. He's the minister. So that means he does all the ministry, all the ministering. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of been twisted today because... Uh, you have professional ministers running around, you know, people that are in it for the career or for the money or the prestige or whatever. Um, in fact, there's become kind of an aura that's surrounded clergy and ministers. People hear you're a minister. I don't tell people I'm a minister, really, unless they ask me point blank, what do you do? But I never, I hate that when somebody goes into a store and says, do you have a minister discount? That is so nauseating. I mean, don't say that. Good heavens, I'll give you this thinking discount. Don't go in and say that. Don't, don't make people, you know, don't reinforce the concept that many people have already gotten that pastors and ministers are just got their hands held out. They're just a bunch of, you know, uh, sleaze bags always looking for some deals. I mean, I hate that, you know. But people here, you're a minister. It's like right away they roll out the red carpet. They get their best shine out. Uh, years ago, a woman and her husband invited me over for coffee. They're just coming to the church, brand new, and uh, I, I sat down and she had her like her best china out. And I said, I said, is this your chi good china? She said, yeah, well, yeah. I said, man, I, you can put styrofoam. Uh, I, you don't need to get your best china out. I mean, it's like I get uncomfortable when people start fussing over me because I'm the minister. That's why I don't like to to verbalize it. But uh, there's an aura that is kind of developed around ministers. When in reality, all of us, Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be, what? Ministers to all. Servants of all. Same Greek word. Everybody in the body of Christ is a minister. Not just the pastor. So, we have to realize what Jesus Christ is saying here. The greatest among you is going to be the servant of all. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. Oh, that's even lower, you know. A servant didn't have much, many times just the clothes on his back, but at least he had the freedom to come and go as he pleased. A slave didn't even have that 
kind of freedom. This, a slave, obviously, had given a, didn't have any rights. And of course, as the bond slaves of Christ, when it comes to our relationship with Him, we have no rights, really. We have given up all of our rights to be His bond slaves, which means wherever He sends me, I go. Whatever He commands me to do, I do. There's no such thing as a, a slave that says, not so, Lord, like Peter. Peter, rise, kill, eat, not so, Lord. No, if he's your Lord, if he's your master, you can't say, not so. Only thing you can say is, yes, Lord, your servant obeys, because if he's your Lord, if he's your master, if you're his bond slave, you have to respond in that way. Um, again, so many Christians not understanding what it really means to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ what it really means to be great. I'm sorry to see all this. And of course, the church is now being flooded with teachings that are reinforcing this whole concept of worldly greatness. I think the whole self-esteem teaching that's flooded into the church reinforces this idea of, of building ourselves up because we're thinking highly of ourselves, even though the Bible says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought, uh, but be lowly, you know, I mean, of mind. If you're thinking highly of yourself, you're not going to want to be a servant to anybody. You're going to want to be served. It's just human nature. The more you think of yourself, the less you're going to think of others, the more you're going to think that others need to be serving you and not the other way around. So Jesus is breaking, obviously, a lot of molds here. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. And ultimately, that is the whole crux. I mean, we are following Him. And, you know, if ever you get confused about what your role is as a Christian and what you should be doing and things like because, I mean, there's so many teachings today that are flooded into the church. Sometimes we, we get kind of confused as to what does it really mean to be a Christian? What is my role? If you get confused, look right back at the prototype, Jesus Christ. Just look at Jesus and follow everything he did, how he gave and he gave and he gave and he died to self, and he died eventually physically for others. I remember years ago, again, I was a brand new pastor. Some pastor in the area had found out that we were a brand new church, and it's a nice guy. He invited my wife and I, him and his wife, invited Sidney and I out to dinner just to talk to us about ministry, you know. Nice couple, sincere, you know. But as we sat down to dinner, I began to, you know, to tell him, as a new pastor in a small church, it wasn't a lot of people. You know, you're wearing a lot of hats. You're doing a lot of things, you know, setting up chairs. And, you know, I, I still set up chairs today. You know, I mean, uh, but it's obvious as we began to talk that his concept of a pastor was different than what I had been aware of or felt. You know, he said, his wife and him said, well, you know, you, you can't go around setting up chairs and things because that belittles your office as a pastor. Other people want to do that. Let them do that because it makes them feel involved. But you can't do things like that because that, you know, that doesn't give the respect in the eyes of the people that you need as a pastor and all. And I'm, I'm listening to all this. This is a man that's older and, you know, I'm thinking wiser than me. And so he's got my head now full of all this stuff. And I'm thinking, gee, am I blowing something here? Am I, am I bringing dishonor to the office of, that God has called me to? And uh, I don't know where to turn. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do. I, I prayed and I called my pastor who was 2,000 miles away, Chuck, that I, you know, he's a busy man. I mean, uh, you, don't, you never get a hold, you know, you don't get through to Chuck Smith. I mean, he's a busy guy. But I didn't know where else to turn. And so I called and I got a hold of a secretary. I said, look, I'm, you know, pastor from Cal uh, Calvary out in Illinois. And can I just talk to Chuck for a minute? And she goes, uh, hang on a second. And all of a sudden, Chuck gets on the phone. <laughs> and I said, Chuck? I said, is this, is this you? Uh, and I said, you know, I ran the whole thing by him. And he said, look, he said, Phil, he said, I've set up chairs. I've cleaned out urinals. And as I'm talking to you, I see some trash in the parking lot that after I get done talking to you, I'm going to go out and pick up. He said, you're a servant. He said, Jesus Christ was a servant. I mean, he's the example. I mean, look what he did. He washed the disciples' feet. Did that belittle his office in their eyes? I mean, the greatest among you will be a servant, he said. No, he said, no, you know, be a servant. Lead your people by being an example of a servant. Let them see in you 
the heart of a servant. And hopefully they'll catch that heart too. And so Jesus is the example. And a lot of people mean well, but they get off track as to what it's all about to be a, a follower of Christ. Now verse 46 says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now, Jericho was a beautiful oasis in the desert. Jericho is just north of the Dead Sea, and that area is a pretty barren area. But here's Jericho, well watered, palm trees. It's a beautiful city. Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tells us as they were coming, as they went out of Jericho, okay, they came to, to Bartimaeus and uh, the son of Timaeus. Uh, Luke tells us that as they, were, as they were entering the city, so there seems to be a discrepancy. Matthew and Mark say as he was going out of Jericho. Luke tells us he was going into Jericho. What's the deal? Well, there was actually two Jerichos. One was a Jericho that had been destroyed. It, was, it, was, it lay in ruins about a mile away. And then this new Jericho that had been rebuilt, as I said, about a mile from the site of the old Jericho. So technically, Jesus was leaving the ruins of old Jericho and entering into the new city. So again, you know, people say, well, the Bible is full of all kinds of contradictions. Well, if you just know a little bit of the history or the, you know, or, or the language, it clears up. But anyways, Jericho, Jericho uh, was kind of famous for a, uh, a bush, a balsam bush that apparently they believed had some kind of medicinal properties to cure blindness. And so Jericho was loaded with blind people. A lot of blind people went to Jericho in the hopes that this bush could be used, this medicine from this bush could be used to maybe re restore their sight. So that's important as you realize now that a lot of blind people were there in Jericho. Only two. I know that Mark only mentions and Luke only mentions Bartimaeus. But Matthew tells us that there was another one. Okay, there was two of them. Bartimaeus was probably the more vocal of the two. That's why Mark and Luke just focus on him. Even though there was another man who was also blind, who also was healed by Jesus in this uh, instance. And maybe Mark mentions his name. Mark's the only one who mentions his name because possibly Mark writing this years after the fact, maybe this guy Bartimaeus, we're going to find out, he, we, he became a follower of Christ. He might have gone on to become somebody very prominent in the early church, somebody that everyone pretty much knew. And Timothy might, in call, and Mark, in calling him by name, would have, everyone would have said, oh, Bartimaeus. Sure, you mean Bartimaeus was one of those guys? Bart was one of those guys that Jesus <laughs> healed in Jericho? Yeah, Mark was maybe saying, that's the guy, see? So, a little color. Uh, but Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, see, he no doubt heard the commotion. Uh, Jesus was thronged by a lot of people, a lot of them that were going to Jerusalem, probably in preparation for the Passover coming up. But... More than anything else, he always drew a crowd wherever he went. So a lot of people were following him. He no doubt heard the sound and the commotion. And so he asked somebody what was going on. They said, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by here. He had heard no doubt of Jesus. Even though this guy didn't have physical sight, he had tremendous spiritual sight. Because he believed Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, and he believed that Jesus could heal his blindness. Uh, he believed that. And he recognized, hey, this was the, my, my only chance to be healed. And so when he heard it was Jesus, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David was a messianic title. It was a messianic title. And he was saying to Jesus, in essence, I believe that you are the Messiah. And the Greek says when he cried out, uh, the Greek word is krazo, and it's a, a loud cry, almost, and it was often used of a woman who was in childbirth. I mean, this man was crying out with all of his heart to Jesus for mercy. He's really screaming for the Lord to get so, in fact, he's screaming so much that the people who stood around said, hey, shut up, you know? Aren't people compassionate? 
Don't you just love people sometimes? You know, shut up, man. You know, here's this blind guy yelling out to Jesus for mercy, and the crowd's going, shut up, you know? So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Now, after Jesus called for him, uh, they called the blind man, saying hey, to him, Hey, be of good cheer. Rise, he is calling you. Now they're all excited, you know? In <laughs> yeah, Matthew's Gospel, it says, they said, Shut up, man. And then when Jesus said, Hey, Jesus still said, Bring him to me. They said, He's calling for you. <laughs> cheer up. Come on, you know? Now, see, now they want to see a miracle, right? Now it's like, Hey, we didn't think he was going to do any miracles. Get up, man. Get over there. Rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment. And you know, the beggars, the blind uh, folks, uh, were often beggars. They had no other means of support. And they wore a certain kind of a cloak that kind of indicated, and no doubt it was pretty worn out and, and worn, tattered and all, but it was a certain kind of a cloak that was kind of a, you knew that was a beggar, you know. And uh, it could very well be this guy tossed aside his beggarly garments knowing that he wasn't going to need them anymore. Jesus called for him. He knew he wasn't going to go away empty. He knew Jesus would not have called for him to let him just go unhealed. So he knew the Lord was going to heal him. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus knew. But you know, the Lord's always trying to draw out our faith. He knew what, he, he knew what James and John wanted. He wanted to hear it from them, see? And he knew what Bartimaeus wanted, but he wanted to hear it from him too. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, which is a, a word that means my great one. Only used twice. Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus called Jesus Rabboni, and who else? Mary. Remember? Mary? Mary Magdalene by the garden tomb, the morning of his resurrection, when he finally made himself known. She was thought he was the gardener at first. And then he said to her, Mary. We don't know how exactly he said it, but the inflection in his voice, she knew right away it was Jesus. And she said, Rabboni. She grabbed on and wasn't going to let go. But he said, Rabboni. See, now, son of David was a messianic national title. Now he says, my great one. Now he's personalizing it. He says, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word there for well is the Greek word sozo, which could mean be made well in the physical sense. And no doubt he was. But it's also the most common Greek word translated salvation. So he received more than his sight. He received salvation too. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, you know what? As I thought about this today, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit will communicate, of course, principles through types. There's a lot of blind people in Jericho, but only two, and one in particular, cried out to Jesus for help and received their sight. I think Bartimaeus is a type of the person who recognizes that they are blind, destitute, and they cry out to Jesus for help, for healing, and for salvation. See, the problem is everybody in this world is like Bartimaeus. Everybody in this world, spiritually speaking, is blind and destitute. But I'll tell you this, those that are really in trouble are those that think, though they're blind, they see, and though they're poor, they're rich. It's only those that realize, hey, I'm blind, spiritually speaking, and I'm poor. In other words, I, I have nothing to offer God. I have no good works that can ever earn my way into his kingdom. I am destitute of anything that will ever earn me the kingdom of heaven. And they cry out to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus calls them to come. And they cast away their garments, our filthy rags, right? The Bible says we're clothed in filthy rags, our, our works of righteousness, which are, which are not righteous works at all. And we come to Jesus and he heals us, opens our eyes. And Bartimaeus, what did he do? He did what? He, he, well, thanks a lot, Jesus, and then took off. No, he, he followed Jesus. Where was Jesus going? To the cross. So Bartimaeus was a true disciple. A true disciple cries out to the Lord for mercy. And when the Lord touches and saves that person, he always then follows the Lord to the cross. A true disciple always, it's like Jesus, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. Bartimaeus was a true disciple. And I really believe in the years to come, he became a powerful, I mean, a recognized figure in the early church. And I think that's why Mark names him. I think that Mark knew people that knew Bartimaeus and wanted us to know, hey, this, was Bar this is Bart. This is the guy we all know. Look what the Lord did for him, and look how his life has been transformed. See? There's a lot of people that think they see. They think they know what's going on, spiritually speaking. They think they have eyes to see spiritually. And they think they're rich, spiritually speaking. Just like the church of Laodicea. But what did Jesus say to the church of Laodicea? Verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So a lot of people that go to church that really think they know the truth. They really think they have spiritual sight. And they're rich spiritually speaking. In other words, hey, God really values them because, boy, all the good things they do for people, and boy, how could God ever get along without me? Kind of an attitude, you know? We're just thinking we're the best thing that the Lord is really lucky to have us in His kingdom. It's a lot of churches with that kind of a proud, arrogant attitude. But you know what? Jesus said, you know what? You guys think you're so rich. You're so with it, you know? but you're miserable, blind, poor, wretched, naked, and so on. And Laodicea, background-wise, was a very wealthy community. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And I personally believe that Laodicea was a church in name, but not in reality. I don't believe the folks of Laodicea were really born again. There's a lot of churches that call on the name of Christ and think that they know the truth and they are, well, spiritually speaking, they have it all together. But if you notice, Jesus was on the outside knocking to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and lets me in, I'll come in. Obviously, he was on not even in their church. He was on the outside knocking to get in. And I believe that's really a problem today. A lot of people are not hot or cold. Those that are cold, of course, are just the you know, blatant sinners and pagans. They know they're not saved. There's no bones about it. They know they're lost. And of course, there are those who are hot. They're on fire for the Lord. They know that they're saved. But then there's this lukewarm, you know, the religion, religionists, the churchgoers. I mean, they're not gross pagans, but they're not on fire Christians either. But they go to church. They believe in Jesus. They call in his name. And maybe they think because our church is so big and so wealthy, maybe it's a sign that we're a little special. Maybe God thinks a little more highly of us than maybe other churches that don't have as much as we have. Maybe our wealth is a sign that God is really blessing us because of our spirituality. I don't know. But you know what? So often, they're lukewarm, which means they have just enough righteousness, pseudo-righteousness, to be kind of inoculative. It, it means it's kind of inoculated them from the real thing. So that they think they are righteous, but they're really not. And so Bartimaeus, I think, is a good example, spiritually speaking, of a blind man. And Jericho was loaded with him, but all the rest of the blind people obviously didn't feel the need for Jesus. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. He knew he was destitute. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord touched him and healed him and saved him, and immediately received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So here we are now. We're making our ascension now into Jerusalem. Next week... We'll see that Jesus now uh, enters the city. And um, as I said, we're just weeks now from the cross. And things are going to get real interesting from here on out. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you've opened our eyes to the truth.
We thank you, Lord, that while we were blind, you convicted our hearts that we were blind and destitute. That you made us realize, Lord, through the power of your Spirit and through your grace, that we were poor, in a miserable condition, blind and naked spiritually speaking. Thank you for showing us that, Lord, because it was that realization that drew us to Christ and caused us to cry out for mercy to the Son of David, who then laid his hands upon us, calling for us, and brought us into the kingdom, into your, your family, Father, and gave us spiritual sight and a mission. And hopefully, Lord, we are following after Jesus all the way to the cross because only a true disciple goes to the cross. I mean, Lord, unless we go to the cross, we are not your true disciples. Help us to recognize, Lord, that the path to greatness is a path that leads to the cross. And if we're not willing to die on the cross, we're not willing to really be your disciples. And so help us, Lord, never to lord it over, never to think like the world thinks with regard to greatness, but to always look to our Jesus to be the example who always put others first and ultimately died for others, Lord, that we might be saved. Help us to die to self, take up our cross, and follow after Jesus, Lord. And hopefully someday you'll be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. Now I'll make you ruler over X amount of cities. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We want, Lord, that that uh, pronouncement by you upon our lives that we have been faithful. And now you've looked at us and will appoint us to greatness in the kingdom. We just thank you, Lord, and ask you now to guide us home safely and help us to apply this teaching into our not only our week, but into our life, that more and more we reflect the character of Jesus and less and less the character of the world. Father, we thank you now and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.